We are continuing our study of the book of Genesis, uh, and now we've arrived at chapter 21, and it is a breakthrough chapter, a promise that we've been waiting to see fulfilled since chapter 12 happens finally in 21. So now hear a reading from the 21st chapter of Genesis. The Lord visited Sarah just as he had said he would and did for Sarah what he had promised. So Sarah became pregnant and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the appointed time that God had told him. Abraham named his son, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him just as God had commanded him to do. Now, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made me laugh. Everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. She went on to say, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have given birth to a son for him in his old age. The child grew and was weaned. Abraham prepared a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah noticed the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, the son whom Hagar had borne to Abraham, mocking. So she said to Abraham, banish that slave woman and her son, for the son of that slave woman will not be an heir along with my son Isaac. Sarah's demand displeased Abraham greatly, because Ishmael was his son. But God said to Abraham, do not be upset about the boy or your slave wife. Do all that Sarah is telling you, because through Isaac, your descendants will be counted. But I will also make the son of the slave wife into a great nation, for he is your descendant too. Early in the morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He put them on her shoulders, gave her the child and sent her away. So she went wandering aimlessly through the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she shoved the child under one of the shrubs. Then she went and sat down by herself across from him at quite a distance, about a bow shot away. For she thought, I refuse to watch the child die. So she sat across from him and wept uncontrollably. But God heard the boy's voice. The angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and asked her, What's the matter, Hagar? Don't be afraid, for God has heard the boy's voice right where he is crying. Get up, help the boy up and hold him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God enabled Hagar to see a well of water. She went over and filled the skin with water and then gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew. He lived in the wilderness and became an archer. He lived in the wilderness of Paran. His mother found a wife for him in the land of Egypt. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now swear to me right here in God's name that you will not deceive me, my children or my descendants. Show me in the land where you are staying the same loyalty that I have shown you. Abraham said, I swear to do this. But Abraham lodged a complaint against Abimelech concerning a well that Abimelech's servants had seized. I did not know who has done this thing, Abimelech replied. Moreover, you, you did not tell me. I did not hear about it until today. 
Abraham took some sheep and cattle and gave them to Abimelech. The two of them made a treaty. Then Abraham set seven ewe lambs apart from the flock by themselves. Abimelech asked Abraham, What's the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you've set apart? He replied, You must take these seven ewe lambs from my hand as legal proof that I dug this well. That is why he named the place Beersheba, because the two of them swore an oath there. So they made a treaty at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba. There he worshipped the Lord, the eternal God. So Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for quite some time. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment of silence, we ask, speak to us about your word. Father, would you open our ears so that we can hear what you're saying? Would you open our eyes so we can see what you're showing us? Would you open our hearts so that we can believe what you're doing in us? And draw draw us to yourself and your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Throughout our study of Genesis, I've said almost every week, so sorry, um, that the first readers or the first hearers of these stories were the group of people that God rescued out of Egypt, the Israelites. They had been slaves for generations in Egypt. It's all they knew. He rescues them out. They go across the Red Sea, and there they are wandering in the wilderness, and they're trying to figure out, what are we doing here? Like, who is this that rescued us? And He's clearly, he's clearly claimed us. He like he's made us, he's made us different. He's telling us to be different than the other nations, and so, for our passage today and to understand this passage well, I think one of the questions that they're asking is, what does it mean to be the people of this God? Like, what does that look like? Surely that's their question. And, He rescued them. He's leading them. For for what? What does it mean? I think our passage answers that question. God's people have been given various names throughout Scripture. Um, The chosen people, the elect, the children of Abraham. Later, uh, after Jesus, the church. Jesus preferred another term. He emphasized this word, disciple. The people of God are disciples. And we use that word a lot, disciples. And we maybe we think we know what we mean by it. And I, it kind of lines up for me because sort of in my, in my own study, I've been thinking about this idea of a disciple and discipleship and saying, what does that really mean? How, how do we live that out? And it's the same question, you guys. What is a disciple and what does it mean to be the people of God. Jesus tells his followers, his disciples, at the end of the story, after his resurrection, to go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. That's what he called them to do. And when he said that, he, he said, go and make disciples. Uh, and then he sort of explains what that means. 
Here's what you'll do to make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. God's people in the vocabulary of Jesus are disciples. And and right here, he tells us what they are. So three things. uh, Four things, sorry. A disciple is in covenant with God's people. I think that's what he means when he says baptizing them. Second, they're learning to obey the commands of Jesus, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. Third, they're remembering Jesus' presence with them. Remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And fourth, they're sharing it with the nation. Go, make more disciples of the nations. I, I, I've been thinking about that on its own, separate. And so I may be making the mistake that a lot of preachers make where I'm taking an idea I have and I'm jamming it onto another passage. But I hope not. Because as I studied Genesis 21, I'm like, oh my gosh. This is what he's doing in the life of Abraham. It's all right here. It's not a new definition. By presenting a disciple like this, Jesus is saying that his disciples are a fulfillment, a continuation of Abraham's mission that we see in 21. So, so for this sermon, I just want to show you, show you why I think that. <laughs> you can disagree with me later um, or during and talk to me later. Okay. So first, let's just, that we've got this sentence, all right? A disciple is someone who's in covenant with God's people, learning to obey the commands of Jesus, remembering that he's with them and sharing with the nation. So first, a disciple is in covenant with God's people. So Jesus says discipleship starts with baptism. That's what he says. Go, make disciples, baptizing them. Now, there's a lot of different ideas about baptism out there, but here's here's sort of the common denominator of what baptism signifies. A baptized person has symbolically been brought from death to life and has been marked as a covenant member of God's people. They've been marked. They're in a committed relationship with God and his people. And if you want to know like a ton of details about what I think about baptism, we have a whole set of pages on our website about baptism and uh, it's really cool you'll love it okay so that's isaac's story guys this is isaac's story listen brought from death to life isaac is the fruit of a fruitless womb he literally couldn't exist until god provided life to sarah's womb and then as an infant like at eight days old He is marked as a member of God's covenant people. That's what the circumcision deal is all about. The reality of his life and the sign are given by God. And then Abraham obeys it. He does it. So these things are constant reminders to Isaac. Like the fact that he's alive and then his circumcision um, is a constant reminder that he belongs to this new group of people. This this family that God's got a purpose for, a people through whom God intends to communicate something about himself to the world. Circumcision means he's a member of the covenant people. He's he's one with whom God has a structured, purposeful relationship. 
meant to pass blessing to the world. He's supposed to be a conduit. He's supposed to pass something along. And his life itself is a gift. Now, okay, a lot of traditions when we're talking about baptism view baptism as a celebration of someone's conversion. And that's one thing that it can be. It's, it's a public announcement of an in, inner transformation. But I think there's more to it than that. You can read about this on the website. But uh, the New Testament sees baptism as a sign that fulfills circumcision. It's the way we mark one another and say, you're part of the covenant family now. You're part of us. So if a disciple is a baptized person, it means they're, they're connected in a covenant with the people of God. Let me just connect the dots here for you. To be really blunt, to be a disciple and to be in a covenant relationship with God and his people means that in some expression, an expression like this or others, got to be in a committed relationship with the local church, with like actual people who will actually make you uncomfortable and actually step on your toes and actually encourage you. Um, that's, we, we, we show the world that we follow Jesus by the way that we love one another. That's what we do. So, in, in a way, Ishmael, you know, the other kid in the story, the teenager, really, um, he's a foil to illustrate this point. Whatever he's doing to Isaac, whatever the, the our translation said mocking, it's just the word laughing again. There's laughter happening, whatever he's doing. In Sarah's view, in Isaac's, mo- in Isaac's mom's view, it's like really bad, whatever's happening. She's, she can't stand it. And so she's saying, gosh, that disqualifies him from being part of the people of God. Connection with the covenant people requires actually a constant sorting out of conflict. And when someone is ultimately unwilling to own their role in the conflict, Jesus even taught his followers that for a time to, that they're not connected to the covenant community anymore. They're back to being part of the mission field, if you will. All right. So a disciple is in covenant with God's people. And second, they're learning to obey the commands of Jesus. That's the second thing. Okay, so... A lot of you, you know, if you have any background with Christianity, and it's okay if you don't, you might say, I know what a disciple is. A disciple is a follower. There's someone who follows Jesus. You know, that, okay, great. That, and that makes a lot of sense when Jesus is like in the room walking around. Or in, you know, he's in Galilee and he's on his way to Jerusalem. What did his disciples do? They literally followed him around. But like, how do we do that? That's a big question. What do we do when he's not physically walking around? Well, he says it right in the Great Commission. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And he's like commanded them a lot of things. I mean, if you read the Gospel of Matthew... There's a lot of commands, maybe 80 in there. 
spent three years offering guidance to his followers about what to do, how to think, what not to do, what to beware of, how to speak, how to relate to one another. There's a lot there. And I'm not going to go into any specific commands today. (laughs) But I am going to talk about Abraham in Genesis 21. I I remember we're talking about Genesis. Um, Okay, it's a celebration. This is a party, right? It's a celebration. Isaac is born. And and, like the the focus shifts. We look at Sarah for a minute and like it's so awesome and the things she says. And then it's so overt. The things Abraham does after that are the very things that God told him to do. He circumcised him just as God told him to do. It happened just at the time that God said that it would happen. So he obeys the commands. The commands get even harder, you guys. Later on, this thing happens between Ishmael and Isaac, and Abraham loves Ishmael. This is his firstborn son. This is his guy. He's, he's probably about 15 right now. And the, like this thing happens, and Sarah says, kick him out, get him out of here. And Abraham's distraught. Displeased is such a gentle word in our translation. Displeased. He's, he's distraught. He had begged God in an earlier chapter, could you just let Ishmael be the promised child? Let him be the blessing. Let him be the, like, I, I love him. And Sarah's demanding that he be banished. You guys, they're in the wilderness. Sarah is saying, send them out to die. It's a death sentence. So what is Abraham to do? God comes to Abraham and says, do it. Do it. I'm th- this is right in this moment without any context. It's like a troubling picture of God, isn't it? God comes and says, yeah, do what, you're, do what Sarah's asking. Restore the relationship with Sarah and trust that I will not allow him to perish. I can't imagine the pain Abraham felt when he gave Hagar and Ishmael what seems to be maybe less than a day's supply of food. I mean, Abraham's this wealthy guy. And he gives them, you know, a camelback and a loaf of bread and sends them out. Obedience to God's commands is not just simply practicing the strange rituals that he gives us, whether it's circumcision, which is super strange, or baptism, which is less strange, but still strange. It's, it's heart-level sacrifice, deep sacrifice. Give up your firstborn son. I wonder if Jesus had Abraham in mind when he says to his followers, you guys, you can't follow me unless you hate your mother and brothers and father and and children. Isn't that one of the weirdest things that Jesus says? Aren't Christians supposed to love our families really well? (laughs) I wonder if Jesus is thinking about how did God start his people He started his people in this way. Learning to obey Jesus is nothing less than learning to die to ourselves and give him total devotion. And sometimes it feels nonsensical. But that's the thing that we're emphasizing in the season of Lent. 
this painful sacrifice. So Abraham has obeyed every direct command God gave him in his whole life. Abraham's a goof sometimes, right? I mean, I, I like to highlight that. Goof is the wrong word, a fool. But anything, anytime God has said a specific thing, Abraham does it. Like um, leaving his home, becoming a wanderer, circumcising himself as an adult and every male in his household. Uh, not to mention, you know, yeah, just that. Um, now sending away his firstborn son. Uh, when, when Jesus tells his disciples to pick up their crosses and follow him, somewhere behind the scenes, Abraham is nodding knowingly. Like, yeah, he's right. It's that hard. Okay, so a disciple is in covenant relationship with God's people, is learning to obey the commands of Jesus, and is remembering Jesus' presence with him to the very end, no matter what. So I just said all this stuff about obedience. And obedience is important, but it is not foundational. It's not where it starts. It's secondary. The primary thing is that we have been made a part of the people of God by no merit of our own. We just sang that like, we sang the song that you probably know of as I Surrendered All, right? Like, did you notice the words are different? Yeah, they're different. Like, it's not us. It's everything that Jesus gave. He's, that's what he did to be with us to the very end. And whatever else this story is telling the wilderness, the Israelites in the wilderness, it's telling them this. God will keep his promises and won't forsake his people. There's like, after 25 years of geriatric waiting, Abraham and Sarah birth a child. It's crazy. He's here. So the first readers can say, our very existence is a miracle because we're the descendants of Isaac. Like, have a peace. Have a feast. Share the joy. Right? Nothing could spoil that moment, right? Except, well, whatever's happening between Isaac and Ishmael. You guys, Isaac's name means laughter. Sarah says, God's made me laugh. Whoever hears about this is going to laugh with me. Let's laugh together. Two sentences later, she comes on scene, and the Hebrew is, Ishmael was causing laughter with Isaac. Seems like that Sarah's hopes are coming true, right? Now, whatever it was, it's not what she was thinking. And she... Uh, she sends him out. That's why, that's why a lot of translations like ours say mocking instead of laughing. Teenage Ishmael, maybe 15 or 16, is mistreating the miracle child. Maybe he's even abusing him. And he's caught and sentenced to deadly banishment. He's made a shameful mistake as a teenager. Does that sound familiar? Like, Doing something that is shameful, you think it might destroy your life as a teenager. Maybe some of you have things, real things in your life as a young adult or a teenager that did completely alter the course of your life, or you thought they were. To emphasize the shame of it all, the entire chapter in the Hebrew never uses Ishmael's name. It's always 
the son of Abraham or the son of that slave woman or the boy. Never uses his name. Does that mean God has turned his back on him? Friends, if there's anyone in this story that the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, thirsty, could identify with, it's actually Hagar and Ishmael. They're like, oh yeah, we know what it's like for them. Has God turned his back on them? Hmm. I said the text never uses Ishmael's name, and that's kind of true. But Hagar puts him under a shrub and then goes to cry. And she's weeping loudly, and God comes in, or the, the angel comes in and says, I heard the boy. Guess what Ishmael's name means? God hears. I heard the boy. God knows him. He's not leaving him. He comes and he gives them what they need. They don't need it from Abraham. They're getting it from God. The, the shrub, the bush that, that Hagar shoves Isaac under, it's a, it's a weird detail, right? Well, that's, the, that, that's the, only the second time and the only other time that this word shrub is used in Genesis. It happened in Genesis chapter 2, the second telling of creation. The earth is void. There's nothing, not even a shrub grows on the ground. That same word. And so then here's, here she is out in a barren wasteland, no water, you know, dying. And here's this shrub, shove him under it. And then they see a well, just like water springs up. I mean, it's, it's so cool, these connections, how the text is woven together. Like, who else was cast out to wander in the wilderness? Well, Adam and Eve and Cain. Oh, Noah was cast into a, a watery, pre-creative chaos. Abram, too, was cast into the wilderness at the beginning of his life. By now, the Israelites should be thinking, hmm, uh, maybe the wilderness is not such a bad place. Because every time someone goes and wanders, God goes after them. Every time we feel abandoned, alone, that's just the moment, according to Scripture, that God comes looking for us. Mm. A couple of amazing things occur in this one, God says the boy's name or, or identifies the boy by hearing him. How cool. And second, Hagar's eyes are opened and she sees this well. It's, it's Genesis 2. It's new creation. She's experiencing the blessing all over again. Like it repeats the pattern in the wilderness. When they're dying of thirst, who brings water from the rock? God. He's with his people. He speaks tenderly to us in the wilderness places. He calls us home. He comes looking for us. He's with us. And, and as you grow in your faith, one of the increasing blessings, what I hope you experience, is this awareness that he's with you. Oh, I long for that, for, you, for me and for you. The last thing about God's presence brings us back to Abraham. Not far from the well that saves Hagar and Ishmael, King Abimelech comes back on scene and comes back to talk to um, 
talked to Abraham. And ever since this whole Sarah's my sister situation in the last chapter, remember Abraham lied about his wife and Abimelech almost took her in as a wife and it was a big mess. Um, Abimelech has apparently been keeping a close eye on Abraham. Like, what's the deal with this guy? Like, let's keep tabs on him, right? So now he's seeing this old man and his old wife have a child. So Abimelech comes with the commander of his armies and says, God is obviously with you in all you do. Now swear to me that you won't deceive me because you are a lying snake. <laughs> so like, let's get the one thing clear. Like God's with you and that's amazing. And I don't know why he is because you're a jerk, but let's, let's make a deal here because I'm like, I want in on that. I want some of the blessing. Hmm. Here's the simple point. At, at some point, the nations notice. And I think it's when we've been in the wilderness and God does the thing. As we live in covenant with God and one another, as we obey the commands of Jesus, as we enjoy God's presence, eventually the nations rejoice. Eventually they come looking. A few years ago, a friend and I were discussing um, the shocking growth of the church in the book of Acts. Uh, you know, right after the, after the time of Jesus, it just grew by, like, it seemed like thousands of people a day. And I, I was reading it looking for lessons, like, on how to grow a church. Um, but he stopped me. He said, don't you see that almost every time there's, like, this wave of people who come in, it's them coming in asking questions. Like, what? explain what I'm seeing here. I'm curious. They're asking questions. What must we do to be saved? Just like Abimelech coming. The disciples don't need to be pushy salesmen. They simply need to be ready to explain the hope that they have when they're asked to freely share what they've received. So that's, that brings us to the fourth element, the last thing of discipleship. They're in covenant with God's people. They're learning to obey Jesus' commands. They're remembering his presence with them, and they're sharing it with the nations. I mean, that's like what the whole thing of the Jesus' speech at the end of, his, of the story is about, is like, go, make disciples of the nations. Well, how does it happen in Genesis 21? It happens the same way it happens with us, you guys. We give what we've been given. We give what we've been given, and it blesses those around us. Okay, if, you, if you've heard me talk more than today, um, you probably know a, an idea I really like is this word conduit. And like, I don't know, Stephen makes fun of me for it. Conduit. What is a conduit? It's a pipe, right? Passes something from here to there. Um, with apologies to engineers about how I'm going to describe this. Uh, that, that's an attempt to capture our purpose, right? Like, we pass along what we've received. But I, for, as I was writing this around, I'm like, conduits isn't quite right. Because, like, I don't know, we're more like trees whose roots hold the, hold the structure of a riverbank. So we drink from the river and we help the river continue on. Maybe a better word, again, engineers, sorry, is conductor. Um, 
Of course, maybe the first thing some of you think when you hear the word conductor is train whistles or orchestras. And I don't mean either one of those. Conductor, I mean the transfer of energy, right? A pipe is a conduit if it were, and, and works best if it does not absorb any of the liquid. A conductor, as best I understand, must absorb the energy and let it pass through, right? Like copper does with electricity or cast iron does with heat. A conductor only works when it becomes charged and then shares what it has. In Genesis, we meet a God who wants to be with his people and work through his people. Why else choose this weird, inefficient, centuries-long plan that starts with one complicated, foolish old guy and his barren wife? Because through them and us, the blessing is going to spread. And it spreads. I said it's the same way through Abraham and through us. First, it spreads through our households. This promise, Peter said at the beginning of Acts, when so many people were becoming converts, this promise is for you and for your children. For you and for your children. God makes clear the blessing passes through Abraham, not just to Isaac, but to Ishmael. Doesn't he say that? The outcast still has the blessing of new lives. God's blessing is to be fruitful and multiply. And Ishmael carries it. And believers, so do you and your kids. That's the promise. And sometimes your kids will be banished by their own doing or other circumstances into the wilderness. But take heart. Take heart. Ishmael has to experience death and resurrection. Abraham has to sacrifice his firstborn son for the sake of the second. The elder brother must be cast out so the younger can thrive. Hmm. Come back to that. The second place it passes, not just through our households, but through people like Abimelech who notice. They notice that God is with us. So how will we respond? When Abimelech comes to make peace with Abraham, they have to navigate a conflict, you guys. The first thing, Abimelech comes and says, let's make a deal, let's, be in, let's make a treaty, let's be in covenant with one another. And they have to navigate a conflict. Abraham's like, well, but you took my well. <laughs> and uh, Abimelech's like, uh, I don't know what you're talking about, but let's work this out. So they work it out. Um, what does Abraham do to settle the matter? Abraham has already said, that's my well. What does he do to settle the matter? How do the people of God respond to the nations when there's conflict? Abraham generously pays for the well. He's already said it's mine. It was mine. And he pays sacrificially for it. He gives back maybe a lot of what Abimelech gave him earlier. Gives and then he sets aside these seven ewe lambs so they'll be moms of other lambs. That's, I think, why it emphasizes that they're ewes, right? They're a generous gift. It's a humble offering to make peace with Abimelech. Abraham freely received to those gifts despite his own connivance, and now he's freely giving them. 
So how then shall we make disciples of the nations? Friends, I think it's like hanging out with Graceful and being part of what Graceful's doing. It's through what, us passing along whatever we've been given. This is how we got in. Did you know that? All of this is how we got in, how we became part of the people. Friends, the elder brother was cast out, not just for, for Isaac, but for you, for your sake. It grieved the father's heart, but the elder brother was banished to the wilderness of death on the cross. And he cried out, I thirst. Just like Hagar and Ishmael were dying of thirst in the wilderness. But no spring appeared before his eyes. The bitter wine doesn't count. And friends, the generous gift was paid. At the start of Jesus' ministry, what did John the Baptist call him? Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In Jesus, it is both the gift, the sacrificial gift to bring the nations in and the sacrifice itself. The firstborn son for us. So friends, to drink from the life-giving well of Christ, we get to come. We get to come and receive the gift. He has paid generously for it. And you and I, we're Abimelech. We're Hagar. We're Ishmael. We're Isaac. He's paid dearly for us to come to this feast. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread And when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Take this and eat in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this, all of you. Like, remember the covenant. You're part of the people and it cost him dearly to make you part of the people. One of the reasons we do this every week is to remind ourselves that we're connected to God and each other by his generous payment. Father, thank you that you have prepared a table before us. And even when we've spent our week mocking, you actually have paid the price for us to come back to the feast. So, Lord, thank you for calling us back. Let us, let us be disciples, Lord. Make us into disciples. Mark us as your people. Help us obey your commands. Be with us. And help us to freely give. In Jesus' name, amen.